Welcome to Modern Dogma, a Christian considering today's ideas. I'm your host, Elias. You are in episode four. That is where you are. You are here now. I've been trying to change up my episode introductions to not say, welcome to this episode every single time, and I'm realizing there aren't a lot of options. So last time, episode three, I was trying to address how in light of the toppling of statues going on right now, some people were throwing up their arms saying, you can't topple statues and memorials because you're trying to erase history. But to be as fair as possible, I think we Christians need to concede that the goal of the progressives here isn't to erase or revise history per se, even though that is the ever-present danger, but we need to be fair that the explicitly stated goal is more the erasing of various people's legacies. And I tried to make the argument that biblically, destroying someone's legacy is not morally good or morally evil in itself. It all depends on who you are targeting and also how you go about destroying it. So today I want to more directly address the statue topplers the by and large non-believers that are actually going around and vandalizing these memorials of so-called bad guys. And I think from a biblical perspective, they are definitely the easier side to pick on, and so I will. But I want to hopefully bring some more substantial grounding for how to think through the outrage of secular society. And I want to do so by addressing the thing that has congealed in our culture and has come to be known as cancel culture. So for those of you who aren't in the know because you're worshiping God and reading your Bible and not on the internet all the time, cancel culture is this phenomenon in our modern day where our mass society has decided that if you say or do one thing at any point in your life, it could have been 10 years ago when you were a fetus, if you ever did anything at all that is out of step with what our mass society has decided are unforgivable sins, you are hereby canceled for all time. We will demand you are fired from your job, you will be deplatformed on social media, and if you ever dare to show your face in public and try to breathe the same air we breathe, we will follow you around with our phone camera while berating you and post it with glee on our Facebook page. And you would think, based on the extreme punishment being doled out, that these unforgivable sins are truly objectively heinous. You would think this cancellation is reserved for the truly grievous sins as defined by the Bible, like someone murdered a guy or abused a child. But what even secular people are waking up to and causing a backlash over is the fact that it feels like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It feels like there is a disproportionality in the response. It doesn't feel quite right that as bad as it is for someone to say a totally sexist remark on Twitter, their lives get completely ruined for it. And it feels like the goalposts keep changing. An off-color yet socially acceptable joke three years ago is now suddenly unacceptable. And that feels kind of unfair. It feels squishy. It feels like the rules of the game keep changing, but it shouldn't. Well, the world, as usual, has a hard time articulating what's wrong. And make no mistake, we Christians would be just as lost if we were left without God's revelation in the Bible. Christians aren't smarter people. I hope I don't come across that way, by the way, like I'm talking down on anyone. I don't pretend to be smarter than my non-believing friends. I have a lot of non-believing friends that are way smarter than I am. 
I just have the immense privilege of my Creator speaking to me through the Bible and teaching me how to think. I had a great teacher, and you do too. So the destruction of statues we're seeing today is really just a violent outgrowth of the ideology of cancel culture. So let's dive into this ideology and see it through a biblical lens. I think there are at least three main problems with cancel culture, and I will articulate them as first, a wrong judgment, second, a wrong attitude, and third, a wrong standard. Thank you for joining me for my three-point sermon. So let's start with the first, wrong judgment. A huge problem with cancel culture is that it makes judgments on a person's whole life based on moments of that person's life. So in statistics language, it extrapolates this huge, big assumption about a person based on a tiny amount of data. One wrong Facebook post becomes the entire value of your life. The truth of the matter is every single human being on the face of the earth since the beginning of time has countless moments of both great moral victory and also great moral failure. Nobody is perfect. Everybody is a hypocrite. Nobody is consistent in how they live their life. If you imagine the worst possible person, Joseph Stalin, by God's common grace, if you caught Stalin at the exact right time in his life, you might have seen nothing more than a very sweet father with his child. Or take the nicest possible celebrity you know, take Mr. Rogers or whatever. You catch Mr. Rogers at the exact wrong time, you may see someone with a terrible temper. But with Stalin or Mr. Rogers, we don't just take one moment of their life in isolation when we need to evaluate their overall character. You need to expand your view to look at their whole life. You need to look at the entire body of evidence. Let's look at a couple biblical examples to emphasize the point. Consider King Saul. Now, Saul is universally regarded as a cautionary tale. He is considered the archetypical worldly leader that rules according to his own strength and rejects God's help. And as such, Saul was, in turn, rejected by God. You see, Saul lived a life of habitual disobedience to God's word. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, he offered an animal sacrifice that he was not authorized to do. In 1 Samuel 15, he did not totally destroy the Amalekites as he was commanded. And throughout the remainder of his reign, he would continually try to murder his successor, David. So what we discover is the overall witness of Saul's life pointed to the truth that he was not a righteous man, and that is how he ought to be evaluated. However, what some of you may not realize is that this evil King Saul actually had brief moments of great spiritual victory. In 1 Samuel 11, the Israelites at Jabesh Gilead were being harassed by Nahash, the Ammonite, so much so that the Israelites were pleading with Nahash, please make a peace treaty with us and leave us alone. Stop killing our people and taking our stuff. The wicked Nahash responds by stating, sure, I'll make a peace treaty with you, but on one condition, I get to gouge out all your right eyes. Really sadistic. But wouldn't you know, when Saul, of all people, hears about the plight of the Israelites at Jabesh Gilead, the text states in verse 6 that, quote, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and Saul was filled with righteous anger, and he achieved a great courageous rescue of the people of Jabesh Gilead. 
Now, if all you had was 1 Samuel 11, would you not be tempted to conclude that Saul was one of the great kings of Israel? Yet, when we see the overall trajectory of his life, when we inspect his entire reign, we come to the more accurate conclusion that Saul was a worthless king. The prophet Samuel condemns Saul's legacy in 1 Samuel 15, 26, quote, You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel, end quote. And on the flip side, take one of the great heroes of the faith, King David. While Saul was the archetype of the secular king, David is the archetype of the godly king. So much so that in scripture, David is often explicitly used as the standard against which other kings are measured against. For instance, God tells the evil King Jeroboam in 1 Kings 14, 8, quote, Jeroboam, you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes, end quote. Now, that is actually an amazing statement if you know the history of David, because as the evil King Saul had moments of great righteousness, the righteous King David had moments of great evil. In particular, David committed adultery with another man's wife, impregnated her, and then to cover up his tracks, murdered the woman's husband in cold blood. I mean, consider how David would be treated in today's climate. Forget about posting a racist tweet. David would be crucified by today's cancel culture for what he did. Yet, amazingly, how does God regard him? I state it again. My servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. So how is that statement by God possible? It's possible because the defining difference between Saul and David was that David had genuine saving faith in God's grace. David trusted God, not himself. And because David trusted God, the inevitable result was that the general pattern of David's life was one marked by repentance, which led to righteous deeds. When David fell into sin, he never stayed in that sin. He eventually confessed his sin and turned back to God and continued doing good actions. Now, let me be clear. David was not considered a good man because he generally did good things, though. David generally did good things because he was miraculously transformed by God's grace alone into a good man. There's a huge difference there. David was not saved by good works. His good works provided objective evidence that he was saved. So let's bring this principle back to the topic at hand regarding cancel culture. So first of all, when it comes to the true ultimate evaluation of a person's life, only God can do that perfectly, right? And the true measure of your righteousness is whether or not Christ's righteousness is covering you as a sinner. The truth is we are all inherently evil and we all need to be canceled in the sight of God. But that being said, there are still times when we need to evaluate fellow sinful human beings in terms of their relative goodness, not true absolute goodness, which is measured against God, but relative to other people, it's still necessary to do that sometimes. For example, if you're a recruiter trying to decide who to hire, you're not necessarily looking for a Christian that exhibits ultimate eschatological God's perspective righteousness. 
you're looking for someone with relative righteousness. You know, someone without a criminal record, someone that's easy to work with so they don't make trouble in the workplace. None of those qualities get you into heaven, but we need to make those relative judgments sometimes. Or if you're trying to figure out what author to read to learn about a subject, you're not necessarily looking for an author that's a genuine Christian that is saved by Christ and given Christ's righteousness. You're comparing and contrasting different authors against each other to see who has a track record of relative honesty. So how do you determine that relative righteousness? Again, not absolute true righteousness. True righteousness is a gift from God that is miraculously granted, totally by grace alone, not by merit, to be received by faith alone. None of us are actually good in and of ourselves. So if we're trying to evaluate two statues of two non-Christians, and we're trying to determine which one deserves to stay up and which one deserves to be torn down, we know that ultimately, in God's sight, both people are not good people. But we're not dealing with that heavenly concept here. We're in the plane of earthly existence right now. So even though the principle of David and Saul's life in the Bible cannot be used directly to this situation, we get help in determining relative righteousness among even unbelievers by applying the principle of King David's life. And that is the fact that when trying to determine the value of a historical figure's life, we need to look at as large of a timescale as possible. When you want to determine whether someone's legacy has merit in a relative sense, you want to look at the general body of his life's work, not just one fleeting moment or one particular vice. Hitler probably loved his sister, but you need to look at the entire collection of his deeds and all those people he murdered and the war he started. Your mom might have been petty that one time in your childhood, but do you just dismiss those 20 years she loved and raised you the best way she knew how? A theologian might teach one point of doctrinal error on some secondary doctrinal issue, but before you throw out all his books and ministry, did you consider his entire body of faithful preaching and teaching? And most relevant to the cancel culture zeitgeist, a celebrity might have made a pretty racist comment on Twitter, but what does the rest of his life point to? Maybe it points to the fact that he's actually just a pretty racist, terrible person. But we Christians, unlike the world, need to demand more evidence than just one moment to make these determinations. So I'm not sure if any of you guys noticed, but whenever I've been talking about George Floyd, I've been trying to be careful to state George Floyd was killed, not murdered. Because as damning as the video of his killing seems to be, we need to be humble enough to admit that we don't have all the facts yet. We need to wait until these police officers are put in a court of law and all the evidence comes to light. Real life is complicated. What may seem like a clear-cut issue can often have a lot of extra variables to consider. If I can offer just one Bible verse to the internet, I guess other than John 3.16, it would be Proverbs 18.17, which states, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. You ever find yourself living out that proverb? The first guy lays out this really nice, compelling, eloquent argument on why he's right and the other guy is wrong, and you're totally convinced, you're totally sucked in, you have your moral outrage ready to go, you get your keyboard ready to type in the YouTube comments, until a week later when the second guy speaks up. And wait a minute, he's really eloquent too. He's also making good arguments. Who do I hate? 
That's the point. Life is messy. And if we're not directly involved, it's usually none of our business anyway. We need to stop scrambling to judge a case without knowing all the facts. And that brings us to the second problem with the cancel culture, which is the underlying attitude of arrogance and hypocrisy. I mean, who do we think we are that we are so quick to pass judgment on other people for momentary lapses into sin as if we don't commit sometimes those same exact sins ourselves? The human condition is marked by blatant hypocrisy. We never consistently live out the ideals we pretend to espouse. The rabid, foaming-at-the-mouths thought leaders of the cancel culture play a dangerous game of writing the exacting rules that they themselves will, with enough time, violate. I think it's particularly easy to feed our inner monster of self-righteousness in the internet age. I can go back and delete that unloving comment on Facebook from a month ago. I can go back and change that photo. I can go back and edit my profile. And on a personal note, I just want to get ahead of this now. Make no mistake, after I do enough episodes of this podcast, you will find plenty of stupid things I will say. But we can curate an illusion of a perfectly spotless life on the web. That is, until you become too well-known and people start screen-capping all your posts. Well, guess what? In the sight of God, not just every single deed or word you utter is screen-capped by God, your entire thought life is recorded. Before a holy God, we all fall short of a righteous life, and no amount of social media scrubbing is going to save us from his wrath unless you turn to Jesus to be forgiven. Jesus is clear about what path the cancel culture will traverse. In Matthew 7, 1-2, it says, Judge not, because with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So, once again, sometimes we need to make those relative evaluations of people. It's a necessary part of life. Uh, where you choose to get your news from this morning is a sort of judgment of a news reporter's value and trustworthiness. Who you choose to do business with is a necessary evaluative judgment that you make. But that is wholly different from the attitude of judgmentalism, the prideful looking down your nose on the celebrity's fall from grace, the egotistical, you made one momentary mistake and now I will rush to define you by that mistake forever, as if we are God. That idea that I'm always going to be on the quote-unquote right side of history and if I were in your shoes a hundred years ago, I would have done things better. The cancel culture needs to take a page out of James when he cautions us in chapter 3 verse 2. We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. The social justice advocates need to hear John in 1 John 1.8 where he warns, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Let me paraphrase that for the contemporary day. If we say we are woke and an ally of justice, and you are blind, racist, white people, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I mean, you can't make up a more arrogant, self-congratulatory label than calling yourself woke. What's the implication? I can truly see you are blind and asleep. What's the nauseating, trendy dictum you keep hearing people throw at each other these days? You're not paying attention. 
If you don't realize so-and-so, you haven't been paying attention. If you haven't read all the news articles and read all the history books that I read, you haven't been paying attention. If you don't care about the same social issues I do, you haven't been paying attention. What are you, the Ritalin of society? You're the most mentally acute person to ever walk the earth? So the first problem with cancel culture, woke culture, outrage culture, whatever you want to call it, is these worldly proponents rush to judge a person based on way too little evidence. One tweet, one quote is all it takes and you're a pariah forever. The second issue really causes the first issue, which is a totally tone-deaf, hypocritical attitude of self-righteousness that props up this crazy high standard of ethics that any clearly thinking person would have the humility to admit that no one can achieve. The third and last problem with the cancel culture is one that has been tackled by tons of other people in the church that can articulate it way better than me, so I'll be brief. And that is the fact that the cancel culture uses subjective morality. Morality is only objective when it is grounded in who God is as he reveals himself to be in the Bible. When you choose any other standard to define good and evil, you either run into contradictions, like what happens with false gods and false religious texts, or you get a constantly morphing standard of morality based on whatever is fashionable at the time. This is exactly what is happening to J.K. Rowling at the moment, by the way. If you don't know, J.K. Rowling is the author of the Harry Potter series, and she's in hot water right now because Rowling, a self-professing liberal progressive and great advocate of the LGBT movement, is now being eaten by her own in the trans community because it turns out she's not actually progressive enough. You see, apparently, Rowling had the gall to state in a tweet on December 19th of last year that the concept of biological sex is how you define a man and woman. And continuing to dig her own grave before the cancel culture, Rowling issued another tweet on June 6th last month that people who menstruate are women. Imagine that. Why is it that the history of all secular revolutions ends up with the first revolutionaries quickly being consumed by their successors? Why are the Trotskys executed by the Stalins? It's because the moral foundation of all non-believing movements are built on nothing. There's no base. The goalposts for good and evil are constantly shifting. The rules keep changing, and it's impossible to keep up. You were on the cutting edge of progressivism one year, and by the next year, you didn't progress fast enough. Oh well, now you're the enemy. It goes to say that the biblical worldview never changed in its moral outlook throughout all of redemptive history. It's popular to try to claim God approved of slavery in the Old Testament or whatever, but such charges speak more to the critics' reading comprehension than God's character. So I'll just address that real quick. God did not invent slavery. Man did. God was speaking to a society where slavery was simply a reality, and so that he didn't overwhelm them all at once with reform, he put up patiently with believers' sins for a time. Reading God's word in its proper context, however, the way we read anything, by the way, we come to the stunning, undeniable conclusion that there is no wiser, more consistent standard of morality than God himself. So before we end for the day, I want to go back to the statue toppling stuff that triggered this whole discussion about cancel culture. I want to point out that I didn't try to rule on individual statues and whose legacies in America we should uphold and whose we should tear down. The honest truth is, as of right now, 
I don't know enough of the historical backgrounds of Robert E. Lee or Ulysses S. Grant or whatever, and even if I found the time to read all the primary and secondary sources, any honest historian will tell you how difficult it is to truly grasp the context of a person's life in distant history. But I hope I at least offered some high-level principles on how we are supposed to try to evaluate the personages of extra-biblical history if you feel inclined to do so. Little moments in history don't cut it, and we need to approach another person's life with a little more humility and measure them against God's standard, not man-made ones. All that to say, trying to evaluate the relative value of a person's life is hard enough to do for us as Christians guided by God's word. How less qualified is the world? Thanks for joining me today in Modern Dogma. Men err, God is sovereign.